0: Growing up in a theologically conservative congregation in South Carolina, I was taught that there was only one right way to be religious. Conveniently, we had it. (laughs) All other paths, including many other Christian paths, people who understood themselves to be Christian, were said to be dangerous and heretical. But the more I learned about the world, the more evident it became, at least to me, that there are multiple spiritual paths that can lead to compassionate, wise, and generous, et cetera, ways of being in the world. Now, if we actually just stopped right there with uh, that insight into the value of pluralism, that alone would be significant. But there's at least one more important twist on the journey that I want to invite us to explore this morning. As I dive deeper into the world's religions, it also became evident, at least to me, that all religious and spiritual traditions also include problematic parts. No tradition is perfect. As you've heard me say before, quoting one of my colleagues, we are saved from perfection. You're saved from perfection. It doesn't exist. It's an elusive, impossible goal. There is no one universal way that works for all people and places and times. And I've come to value the importance of being transparent about the good and the bad, the inspirational as well as the discredited parts of various religious and spiritual traditions. Such an approach can really empower us to retain the parts that are valuable today instead of throwing out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. Uh, while letting go of anything um, obsolete and no longer helpful in our 21st century, globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world. Now, perhaps all of that is obvious to you, you know, realized Unitarian Universalist, but I confess that there are many times that I've found myself learning about some obscure corner of, of a spiritual path that I didn't know much about previously, only to find myself thinking, oh, maybe this is the one Maybe this is the one with all of the virtues and none of the vices, all of the benefits and none of the pitfalls. Well, anybody, am I alone in that? Anybody else? Okay, a few others, a few others. The rest of you are like, no, we gave up a long time ago. Uh, Well, at this point, having spent the last two and a half decades or more exploring the world's religions as my full-time profession, I found that, at least for me, they all disappoint on some level. We are saved from perfection. Now don't get me wrong, again there remains tremendous value in so many of the world's religions especially when balanced with the insights of modern science as we seek to do here. But I also have come to appreciate the importance again of being honest about the shadow sides of really any religion or anything. The specific example that I'd like to invite us to wrestle with today is from the Buddhist tradition as Mary invited us to begin to do during the spoken meditation. There are so many aspects to Buddhism that I I deeply love and resonate with. And practicing meditation has been incredibly helpful and transformative in my life. As I've shared with you previously, I'm about six months into a two-year formal meditation teacher training program through an organization known as Buddhist Geeks. And one of the things that I heard about in passing that has always bothered me, but that I just didn't know much about previously um, was the relationship between the historical Buddha and his wife. So I did what I often do. I scheduled a sermon to force myself to wrestle with that issue and to invite you to come along with me on that journey. The origin story of Buddhism is understandably often told in a way that glorifies the historical Buddha. No big surprise there. His name was Siddhartha Gautama. The Buddha, of course, is a title, right? It means awakened one in the same way that, I hope I'm not blowing anybody's mind that Christ isn't Jesus' last name, right? It's a title. It means anointed one, right? Jesus of Nazareth got this title. Siddhartha Gautama got this title known as the, the Buddha, Prior to going on a quest to become awakened or enlightened, Startha Gautama was a prince. He lived somewhere in what is known today as northern India or maybe southern Nepal. And sometime around the fifth century BCE, honestly, give or take a hundred years. So that's important. there's a lot of this kind of vague in these stories that's kind of lost to the vagaries of history. But we, we do know some things. His story can be quite inspirational. He was heir to the throne of his father the king with access to all manner of worldly pleasures, the best food and clothes and sexual partners and more. Uh, There may well have been harems in in that court. Keep in mind that this is the same time period in India that brings us the Kama Sutra, right? But Siddhartha turned his back on sensual pleasures to explore some of the most extreme um, spiritual practices of the time before eventually having profound insights into the nature of reality and about the wisdom of the Middle Way that became the Buddhist tradition. Now, on the one hand, I'm incredibly grateful for the spiritual insights that Siddhartha Gautama has shared with the world that have benefited me, benefited so many, uh, maybe many of you. Anybody benefited from meditation? All right, good. So thanks, Siddhartha, right? But as is often the case, it can be important to recognize that multiple things can be true. And that brings us to the part of the historical Buddha story that's often either left out entirely or glossed over, and that is the impact of his choices on his immediate family. Now do you know the saying that if you're not at the table you might be on the menu? That, that's kind of the situation uh, in many traditions. And the Buddhist tradition has often been told in a way that mostly men were deciding how it would be told and it's been done in a way that has privileged male monastics in particular. And the tradition can begin to look quite different as you begin to account and kind of toggle to other perspectives. For instance, prior to researching this sermon, I sort of vaguely knew that Prince Siddhartha was married and had a son and that he left them at home when he went on this years-long spiritual quest. He returned only briefly, actually at that point, just to take his son with him and to leave his wife behind again. So the first time he left her behind, he wasn't awakened. After being awakened, he still left his wife behind. It's not a good look. Honestly, it's not. Those details bothered me, and the more I learned, the details actually got worse, not better. It bothers me that I've spent many years in and around the Buddhist tradition, but prior to researching this sermon, I could actually not have told you the name of the Buddha's wife. I knew he had one. Often in early Buddhist writings, she's either left out together or called the Buddha's wife or the mother of Rahula, right? She's just referred to in in her relationship to the men in her life. But if you read closely, we do know her name, Yasodhara. And I want to invite us to spend a few moments this morning considering how does the origin story of Buddhism change when we reflect on it from her perspective? Multiple things can be true. If this sermon leaves you curious to learn more, one good starting point is a book titled Yasodhara and the Buddha by a religion scholar named Vanessa Sasan. For now, I'll begin by taking the risk of stating the problem bluntly. To do so, I'll follow the lead of Wendy Doniger. She's a religion professor at the University of Chicago and one of the world's most renowned experts on religions in India. In considering Siddhartha's story from the perspective of Yasodhara, Doniger has said... Her husband abandoned her and took away their child. That's, that's hard. That's really hard stuff. I remember the first time I heard it phrased that way. Her husband abandoned her and later took away their child. I just had to stop and let that sink in. Like, wow, that's, that's really heavy. It's such a painful and all-too-human story that has played out across so many other families across time. And this is one of those points in which we're invited to consider, again, if we can allow multiple things to be true. Can we allow for the messiness and the complexity that the historical Buddha was both clearly a spiritual genius at a world historical level and a really, really problematic husband to be married to? Like, can we let both those things be true? Can we be honest that the Buddha has helped alleviate suffering for countless people through the um, spiritual practices that he helped pioneer and recognize that he also caused significant suffering for some of those closest to him? Can we allow multiple things to be true? Let me add a few more details Then I want to invite us to consider some of the takeaways that might inform our approach to meditation and the Buddhist tradition from a 21st century perspective. As best scholars can discern, Siddhartha and Yasodhara were the same age. Some traditions hold they were born on the same day. And they were both 16 years old at their wedding. And then they were actually married for 12 years before Siddhartha left home. So, um, so likely Yasodhara became pregnant at the age of 28, again with a first child, which turned out to be their son. So the general consensus is there was some unknown struggle around fertility. It's not that um, Siddhartha was, as some very traditional Buddhist orders will hold that he was like celibate before. That, that seems the opposite to be the case. He was quite not celibate. And the, so one common response would be joy around the birth of one's firstborn son after struggling for 12 years. Instead, tradition holds that of all nights, so Mary listed one tradition is that he left a week later. The, another tradition that may, may even be the correct one holds that Siddhartha chose to leave the day his son was born. So his bo- son was born at night and he left without saying goodbye and without ever meeting his son. There are um, some early Buddhist records that make it clear that his abandonment was dramatic and the outcome devastating. Yasodhara woke up the next morning to the news of the departure. She did not take it well, understandably, or maybe she took it exactly right as one would take it. She charged up to the chariot driver who had taken him away and said, why did you do that? Why were you complicit in taking my husband away? She demands an explanation. She shakes in fury. She collapses in pain. When Siddhartha returned six or more years later, around the age of 35, many people in the house, the the palace rushed out to greet him. In contrast, there's a powerful line in some of the early Buddhist records that Yasodhara alone refused to go out to greet him. After so many years, she said, he can come to me. And he did come to her, but only briefly and mostly just to take their son away with him into the forest. Now, she did eventually um, follow but not at first. Now, there were other options. If you look at the traditions in that context of ancient India, there were kings who took their wives with them when they departed into a contemplative forest life. So Siddhartha could have done that. He didn't. And given that Yasodhara eventually became a Buddhist nun and fully enlightened, fully awakened in her own right, it's an interesting question of what might they have discovered together if he had taken her with him on the spiritual quest. Now, in the spirit of fairness, I'll certainly concede that all this was playing out in deeply patriarchal times. It's not like we don't still live in deeply patriarchal times (laughs) 2,500 years later. It was even worse back then. And the historical Buddha did make some important concessions to allow women to be taught meditation. Despite those concessions, though, we need to be honest that women remained second-class citizens in the... um, tradition of the Buddha at the time. Most infamously, there's an early teaching of the Buddha that even the most senior female nun who has been ordained for a hundred years, that she must bow down and respect a junior male monk, even if he has been only ordained for a day. So that's the sort of level of second class citizenship. So where do we go from here? Where do we go with this imperfect and messy and complex situation? Among the many possible takeaways, I want to invite you to consider three in particular. The first, no religious leader ever has been or will be perfect. That's true whether we're talking about world historical figures like the Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, Moses, and others, or whether we're talking about various stripes of ordained clergy. The claim that no religious leader is perfect, that's probably not super controversial around Unitarian Universalists again, but let's be honest that many people, including many UUs, have ended up in a lot of abusive situations by unduly putting religious leaders on a pedestal and failing to be honest about their flaws and their limitations. So may the story of Yasodhara be a reminder that religious leaders can be uh, important and inspirational while also always being fallible human beings. A second potential takeaway is to not limit ourselves to the teachings of the past. Be grateful for what the Buddha got right and just willing to say there are other things that he just didn't get and be willing to augment and supplement. Again, multiple things can be true. The historical Buddha was clearly a spiritual genius, and some aspects of his teaching were limited, for example, by the sexism, the homophobia, the ableism, and other oppressions of his time. We should give ourselves the freedom to update those teachings in light of evolving and more inclusive insights that we have access to today. Third and finally, we should question the singular ideal of the solo male monastic as the like one true way, the purest way of being religious, whether in Christianity or Buddhism or any other religion. Don't get me wrong, if you feel called to go meditate in a cave or a forest by yourself and have deep and profound experiences, wonderful. I look forward to hearing about it upon your return. That is one time-tested way of pursuing spiritual practice. But the story of Yasodhara points us to another increasingly common way of pursuing spiritual growth in the midst of everyday life. The poet, environmental activist, and Buddhist practitioner Gary Snyder has put it this way about practicing the Dharma no matter your situation in life. He wrote, all of us are apprentices to the same teacher that all masters have worked with, reality. And some of you know that quote, reality is what doesn't go away when we stop believing in it, right? It's the, that's, that's reality. And reality says we all get 24 hours every single day, at least on this earth. It's, and he says, it is as hard to get children herded into the carpool and down the road to the bus as it is to chant sutras in the Buddhist hall, Buddha hall on a cold morning. One is not better than the other. Each can be quite boring you know, getting the children out the door every single day and chanting the same Buddhist chants every single day. They both have the virtuous quality of repetition. Repetition and ritual and their good results can come in many forms, changing the car filters, wiping noses, going to meetings, sitting in meditation, picking up around the house, washing dishes, checking the dipstick, all the things that entropy forces us to deal with, right? It just They just have to be done again, you know, it's just, it's just It's always going to happen. Don't let yourself think, he writes, that one or more of these actually distracts you from serious pursuits. Such a round of chores doesn't have to be a set of difficulties to escape so that we may do our practice that will put us on the path. It can be our path. Our invitation is not only to wake up, as the saying goes, it is to wake down, to integrate whatever spiritual insights we have into how we live our daily life. Some of you may know Jack Kornfield wrote a famous book about this called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, right? Like you, uh, So if you want to go deeper into the, this whole idea, um, that's a good book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. To open ourselves fully with mindfulness, with heartfulness, with bodyfulness, right? We're in these bodies. So with heartfulness, mindfulness, bodyfulness to the reality of the life that we already have. Although I continue to value the occasional opportunities to go into deep meditation states on long retreats, I'm increasingly also coming to experience the value and power of practicing mindfulness and heartfulness and embodiment and awareness and concentration and more at home, at work, at the grocery store, at the gym while reading the news. One really difficult place to practice some of these things. May the story of Yasodhara be a challenge to consider the ways that we can wake up right here and right now in the midst of the lives we already have, through every hour of every day and every moment, and that that can actually be one of the most fruitful and the most difficult places to practice. This insight connects us back to our service a few weeks ago uh, where we were drawing some on the work of Dr. Nicole Lapera, the holistic psychologist. It can be one thing to think, oh, I've gotten awakened, or I've had this profound, you know, enlightening experience out in a cave, or whatever. But often the much harder test is again integrating that experience and living it out in your everyday life. Zen masters may be famous for being able to trigger their students in these precise ways that hit on whatever you still need to work on. But if you've ever spent enough time around children, they are preternatural little Zen masters who can also push your buttons and show you what you still have to work on. As you've heard me say before, our family can push our buttons because our family sewed on our buttons in the first place. Along these lines, Ram Dass used to tell his students, if you think you're so enlightened, go spend a week with your family and report back. How did it go? For most of us, that will quickly expose some places that we still have some work to do, as evolved as we may also have become. So as we come to the end, I remain grateful for the tremendous legacy of spiritual wisdom and practice that Siddhartha Gautama helped us discover. And I also remain curious about all that remains to be discovered. That's actually, to me, really exciting, to think that there's still so much to be discovered in light of evolving wisdom beyond what the Buddha and others who came before had been to teach us. About living out the Dharma and the reality of each of our daily lives in our present context. To that end, I want to invite us to lean into that right now in this present moment. Our hymn of response actually is an invitation to practice. So turn in your teal hymnal to number 1031, filled with loving kindness. As we sing this, notice if you can really sing this with intention, really meaning these words the first time we sing it through for I, for myself. And then as we switch, we're gonna sing it through, we're gonna to change to the pronoun you. And you know who, you, who that you is for you today. Who does that need to be, right? Who is that you for you today that you need to work on, that you need to send loving kindness to? See if you can really do that. And then finally three, we'll switch a third time through to we and open yourself to really feeling that interdependent web of all existence as we sing.